Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Herb London, John M. Olin, Professor of Humanities at New York University, and John O'Sullivan, Editor for the National Review, discuss how to determine if there's a distinct American culture. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Okay. Uh, my name is Herb London, and I'm associated with New York University, and I'm here this morning with uh, John O'Sullivan, the editor of the National Review. And while we don't have a specific topic, let me attempt to introduce one, John. Uh, you wrote, in my judgment, an extraordinary piece that appeared in the National Review either in the last issue or the issue before, part of the Bradley Lecture on the, the essence of it is, what is an American? And I'm reminded of Crevacour's question more than two centuries ago of what is an American. At that point, there was an unqualified answer people knew precisely what an American is. The distinctive characteristics of the United States were apparent to almost everyone. Uh, two centuries later, in roughly 1973 or 4, Daniel Bell wrote a piece called The End of American Exceptionalism, where he said the distinctive characteristics of the United States are no longer clear. And that is carried on in your essay. I wonder, one, if you could review your essay and then attempt to answer the question, what is an American circa 1997? Well, I mean, I think an American today is what an American, so to speak, was 50 years ago, uh, although this is denied all around. Um, that is to say, there is such a person as an American, somebody who was born in this country, grows up here, is exposed to its culture, ways of living, traditions, learns its history, speaks its language, uh, mixes with other Americans, comes out as a slightly different sort of human being to all the other human beings on the earth. Now, I think there are similarities between, say, Americans and Australians and Canadians, particularly, uh, and to a slightly lesser extent to the, the British, um, because, uh, uh, like America, Canada and Australia are countries which were settled. Um, admittedly, there were indigenous peoples, but they hadn't shaped the culture and um, history of the uh, countries concerned. But if you go to Australia as early, if you look at Australian history, really as early as about the 1830s, only 60-odd years after the foundation of the state of Australia, of Australia um, the Commonwealth of Australia, you see um, already a distinctive kind of personality, a kind of sunburned, laconic, dry, matey person. And I think you see something similar in the United States, that is to say, independent, straightforward, um, a, a, a nation of people who speak English but and who have a proud faith in their own history of uh, uh, both having settled the continent from England and from other countries, but principally from Britain, and then having rebelled and established as they saw it, and I think uh, rightly saw it, um, in a sense a freer version uh, of an English polity here. And then gradually as other people arrived and their culture influenced, uh, the culture of the settlers, and as the settlers' culture absorbed the new immigrants, you produce this creature called an American. And as I say, what is he like? Well, I mean, you know one when you meet one, so to speak. Uh, I mean, he, uh, he or she stands out from other people if you, uh, you can recognize them. Uh, and they are, as I say, um, I would, well, I'd say independent is the the quality that you associate most with them. A mixture of uh, uh, freedom and equality has shaped the American personality in political terms, but of course it's also been shaped by popular culture, by history, by songs, and, um, and memories, uh, the mystic uh, chords of memories. And um, 
that's an American. Well, let me talk about these mystic chords of memory, and let me refer to one of the issues that you raised in your passing comments, and that is the use of language. We now have a different kind of America, at least with the elites and with the new class. The new class thinks of the United States as a geographic entity, but not a culture. The new class is very much convinced that the people who come here have to speak their own language and, in a sense, live in language ghettos. Uh, we are now facing a real problem in our universities and even secondary schools where history is regarded as unimportant. If I can refer to Stephen Dedalus, a nightmare from which we must awaken. Uh, it seems to me that there's a changing character in America. Uh, in a 1996 poll done by Roper, only 9% of college graduates, I'm not talking about dropouts and I'm not talking about those who have left secondary school, only 9% of college dropouts knew who said of the people, by the people, and for the people. Of course, Bill Clinton didn't know that either, since he referred to Thomas Jefferson as the author of that statement. But it is interesting to me that there is a change that is ongoing. Um, I'll give you one other fascinating illustration. At the Statue of Liberty is now a new plaque that has been put there by Sri Chinmoy, talking about the Statue of Liberty as an international monument, no longer distinctly associated with the United States. Very recently, Commissioner Mills in New York has talked about students taking the Regents' examination in four languages, Russian, Chinese, Creole, and uh, Spanish. Now, if this is in fact some sort of trend, then the characteristics that you referred to before, namely this kind of generalized memory, and in addition, the use of the same language, may be imperiled. Maybe the America we are talking about in the future, the America that uh, the architects of which are the, this new class, have a different view of the United States and the kind of American that you refer to in traditional terms. Well, let me say two things. The first is that this is not the first time we've experienced this kind of questioning about the American identity. Um, and it, it, it stems from the same cause in both the earlier occasion and this. The earlier occasion was the period just before the First World War and really um, until the middle 20s. And that was uh, the peak uh, of the, f the great wave of immigration from the 1880s to the 1920s, which was more or less choked off in 1920, the early 20s, and uh, I think the second act was in 1925. Now, um, that produced an enormous number uh, of immigrants in the United States. Uh, it's often said that America is a nation of immigrants, but it would be truer to say that it's a nation of assimilated ex-immigrants and their children, um, uh, who are completely assimilated because they're born and brought up here. But when you have massive immigration over a sustained period of time, as you had then, and as you've now had, really, since the early 70s in the United States, then inevitably people look around and say, look, 10% of the population comes from other countries. They speak other languages. Because we're tolerant, decent people, we think that perhaps we ought to make arrangements so that they can continue to um, speak their own languages, be educated in them, maintain their own history, which is not that of the United States, and in other words, preserve their cultures and their own ethnic memories. And gradually we fall into the idea that maybe America is composed not of uh, individual Americans, but of distinct ethnicities to which people give their primary loyalty, giving only a secondary loyalty to an American identity. Now, I think that's a fallacy, by the way. Uh, I don't think it's what most immigrants want. It's certainly not what their children want. Um, it's as much an invention of a kind of decadent upper class in the United States, but it gets a plausibility from um, large-scale immigration, which produces a large number of people in this country from different cultures who haven't yet been fully assimilated. It happened in 19, 
as I say, it happened in the uh, really from 1880 until 1920, and it's been happening in the last few years again. And it's the result of the same cause, and I think the solution to it is to moderate the numbers of immigrants coming in each year to a number that can be assimilated into the American identity without without this being um, uh, without the strains and stresses. Uh, that we now see. Well, I have a, a somewhat different view of this notion of assimilation, John. I think in the period from roughly 1880 to 1924, as you've suggested, we had this enormous wave of immigrants, and there was no question it was difficult to assimilate all of them. However, elites during that period had a clear view of what it meant to be Americanized. And even if you read the literature on this uh, during this period, people had to adapt to the culture in the United States. My grandfather, who came here from Eastern Europe, was told when he came here, you have to learn the language. And he always used to curse Americans who would say to him, you open the door, you close the door, because he was obliged to go to night school and learn the language. Now we have a somewhat different ethos, that is, immigrants are not necessarily in the position where they have to adapt to this culture and be Americanized. Now we are adapting the culture to the cultures of the old world. It's a little different. The filial piety that one might have associated with immigrants in the past is not quite the same today. Well, of course, I agree with you uh, when you say that the bulk of the uh, upper classes, the political class, whatever you want to call them, were dedicated to the idea of Americanizing the new immigrants, naturalizing them, as was the case uh, in, in, in those years. Uh, but by the way, even then, there were dissenting views. I mean, and there was a push for cultural pluralism, which is the precursor of multiculturalism, led by people like Horace Callan right. and uh, Randolph Bourne. And, and Horace Callan, you may remember, said that his vision of America was not of a melting pot, but that America would be a democracy of nationalities. Uh, you would be a member of your ethnic group first and an American second. So that happened then. But of course, the impulse is much more powerful now. It's assisted by the fact that our new ruling class, the new class, uh, the educated, non-technical intelligentsia which runs the universities, the cultural institutions, the media, the courts, the bureaucracies, uh, this class is, uh, in a sense, disaffected from the United States and sees multiculturalism as an opportunity to divide Americans by race, gender and, and uh, ethnic group, the better to rule them. It then presents itself as the only group of people who can mediate and interpret between the, these different peoples speaking different languages. And I think that's extremely sinister and very damaging. Um, but remember, uh, in, in the reality of America is not in just that. The reality is that most people speak English. The reality is that most immigrants want their children to learn English. The reality is that most uh, Hispanic immigrants, for example, want to limit immigration. It's a fallacy to think that immigrants believe in endless and uh, limitless immigration. From their own standpoint, they often see an advantage in having um, smaller numbers arrive. I mean, I'm an immigrant myself. Um, so, uh, and the, the loud assertion you hear all the time that America is a multicultural society is false. There are uh, cultural enclaves. There are parts of America, um, the, the Southern California, parts of Florida, where, say, Spanish is mainly spoken. There are other enclaves where you will find large numbers of uh, uh, Asian uh, migrants, but they generally learn English fairly quickly. But in the vast majority of America, everybody speaks English. What multiculturalism is, is an attempt by the new class and um, the lumpen intelligentsia, which does its work at lower levels, uh, to carry out a kind of lobotomy on the American people, to make them forget their history, and to take the children and to stick in their heads a lot of nonsense, which does not represent the truth about American history, but is an attempt to suggest that history has been a kind of impartial 
um, uh, bestower of goods and that it's carefully arranged things so that every ethnic group has had an absolute equal share in achieving everything. Well, there, there is an element of truth to the way in which this has resulted. In fact, if you were to examine uh, textbooks that are used by students in our schools, and again, I'm not suggesting that these textbooks necessarily have an effect. One of the powerful influences in American life is that students never listen to their teachers. And that, I think, may turn out to be very desirable. But the, the, if you were to read the textbooks, what is now very interesting is that they are an expression of the cultural pluralism you refer to. Space is devoted to different ethnic groups, having un, no relationship at all to their real influence in American history. And so, for example, uh, Crispus Attucks, who happened to be mulatto, and was accidentally in the wrong place at the wrong time during the Boston Massacre and was killed, has turned out to get as much space, turns out, it gets as much space as George Washington or Benjamin Franklin or Alexander Hamilton in our textbooks. Why? Only because he's mulatto. Has nothing at all to do with his actual contribution. It's terrible that he was killed at the Boston Massacre, but he was, uh, he was a blacksmith and he simply was crossing the street at the wrong moment. I'm not sure I want to devote as much space to that as Alexander Hamilton, but more importantly, I think what you're doing is you're handicapping the very students who should be learning something about their cultural past. That is the great danger in this. And so you invent heroes, you invent events. Uh, Nia Ron Karenga, who is a leader of uh, black nationalists in the United States, has put together a curriculum in the schools. Well, the curriculum is really quite farcical because that has nothing at all to do with reality. But the reality is an invented reality designed to make people feel good about themselves and make the culture feel, that specific subset of the culture, feel good about itself. And as a result, it has nothing at all to do with our history. Now, I wonder what effect this will have on another generation, two generations, of this kind of propaganda in our schools. What effect does it have on youngsters? What effect does it have on institutions? Well, of course, uh, that kind of thing is completely silly. Uh, as um, to take another example is the attempt to suggest that the Iroquois, uh, with their constitutional thinking, had a serious influence on the making of the Constitution of the United States. This is simply not true. Um, I don't believe that anybody really believes it, even the children, as you say, who were taught it in school. And consequently, it just makes them uh, persuade them that their teachers are a mixture of uh, fools or cowards uh, who are doing this for uh, ignoble motives. Um, the sad thing is, of course, there's no lack of real heroes. Um, for example, um, if you want somebody who was a real uh, American hero, um, what about Frederick Douglass, a former slave? Um, who became a great uh, writer and a great uh, political figure. Uh, so uh, we don't need to invent heroes. They, they are always there, and heroines too. Uh, but there aren't going to be as many heroines as there are heroes, to take one example, simply because women did not play the leading role in politics and art and literature for all sorts of reasons, good and bad, um, uh, for most of the history we're talking about, the history of the United States. And naturally, if they didn't play the leading role, they're not going to figure as greatly in American history. So you can't go around treating history as a kind of uh, equal opportunity area which everybody's got to get an equal say. You've got to look at what actually happened. Only that way will we learn to avoid the mistakes of the past and create a better and more sensible world in the future. Except that you remind me of an interesting book recently published by our friend Matt Glazer called We Are All Multiculturalists Now, where in fact he makes the argument that even though he's aware of the fact the Iroquois probably did not have any effect on the construction of the Constitution, let those people simply believe that idea if they want to. And in fact, Nat, as you may know, is largely responsible for curriculum reforms in New York that move along this, this line of segmentation 
of ethnic groups and, and sexual groups in the United States. And so you wonder when someone who presumably is a very thoughtful fellow and has written some very interesting books on this whole question of affirmative action would come to the conclusion that we are all multiculturalists now. Well, I'm certainly not one. No, and I don't think most Americans are, as I said. I mean, I think this is essentially a monocultural society. Um, it, there's, a, there's a rich common culture available to all Americans, which reflects a lot of different cultural influences, those of the original English uh, and British settlers, and then the influence particularly, for example, in novels of recent years of the Jews, the influence of black Americans, particularly in music, and, uh, and in, um, in, uh, the, uh, in southern culture, I mean, enormous influence. And so in a whole range of ways, other um, groups have influenced this culture and produced a common culture, which is available to everybody. So um, I think that uh, you know Nathan Glazer's uh, motives are good here, but I don't think that he, what he uh, is aiming at will be achieved by those methods. And I'll tell you why. Um, a lot of this is driven by self-esteem, the desire to increase the self-esteem of people so that they will achieve more. But in fact, that's got the cart before the horse. Self-esteem is the result of achieving something. It's not a question, you don't achieve things because you've got self-esteem. Um, it's a result of mastering something difficult, um, doing a good job, and getting a praise from your teacher, which you know is well-deserved. Uh, praise which isn't deserved doesn't have any good effect on you. I mean, we've all received praise wrongly at times, and we know that. And it doesn't make us feel good. It makes us feel cheats. So in the end, you feel that the American culture will assert itself in some fashion. Challenging the multicultural is challenging the new class. I'm simply waiting for that challenge. I am not quite as hopeful as you are, and largely because I see even in rather modest institutions, student institutions not of the first rank, I'm talking about universities now, there has penetrated this university, this whole multiculturalist attitude. It is not simply the Harvards and the Princetons that have been afflicted with this contagion. It is now a national disease. Almost everywhere you go, and I have traveled this, uh, this country rather widely, I find to my astonishment in places where I wouldn't suspect it, I hear all of these arguments, all of the multiculturalist arguments, all of the pluralistic arguments, all of the arguments for ethnic identity and the racial identity and sexual identity. And I'm very much concerned about what this means. I thought, well, students probably don't take this very seriously. In the end, they will come to their senses. I'm not so sure. I don't have a lugubrious view about the future, but I would say I have a very guarded view about the future. Well, you never know what's going to happen, obviously. The future is unknowable. But um, uh, I don't think you're going to get resistance to multiculturalism, I agree, unless you get substantial political figures being prepared to argue the case against it. Otherwise, the resistance to it and the feeling that um, it's all a lot of nonsense, which is widely dispersed throughout the community, will remain a kind of dispersed feeling. It will only come together and, provide, and, and achieve some force, and some political impact, if political leaders organize these sentiments. There are a lot of dispersed sentiments which never get organized by politicians, and as a result, don't influence the course of society. But John, take a look, for example, at our political leaders, uh, Republican leaders, uh, Newt Gingrich, Jack Kemp, Bob Dole, Colin Powell, all walked away from the California initiative in the last election. Now, it seemed to me that was an issue that might very well have been a winning issue for the Republican Party, yet they all chose to ignore it, to pretend it didn't exist. And when they did embrace it, it was embraced half-heartedly. And in the case of Colin Powell, it was never embraced. I can just imagine the effect that this kind of, on this country. If a Colin Powell had said, 
Look at the position that I'm in. I achieved that position solely because of merit. I was able to move up the ranks of the military to one of the highest military offices in the United States, and I did it despite the fact that I'm a black American. I think that would have had a powerful effect, and if he would have embraced the CCRI, I think there are many of us who would have entertained the idea that Colin Powell should be the leading candidate for the Republican nomination in the year 2000. But at the moment, I see him as another lackluster Republican figure. And the same is true with Jack Kemp. I think he would have benefited enormously if he would have embraced the CCRI. And yet, interestingly, we don't have leaders who are doing that. And in fact, it's very hard for me to think of a leader that is someone who might very well be out front for the Republican nomination in the year 2000, who embraces these national issues, cultural issues that I think might very well be winning the day in the future. Well, I think that is true, and I think that is the great problem that you have the leadership of the Republican Party, which is timid, easily frightened by words like racist and nativist, um, and has taken much too lightly the whole multiculturalist uh, advance, which they assumed would just spend itself in the universities, that would be it. It would have no impact on the rest of life. But of course, as you say, it's seeping into every area of life. Judges now sentence people to sensitivity training, which is a form of political re-education, and which should be banned by con any sensible Congress would simply say, judges should not instill attitude training of this kind. It's, it, it is uh, totalitarian in its implications. Um, but, but you have to wake politicians up. They are the most conventional of people. And a new idea almost never invades uh, the head uh, until it's too late. And uh, here, the new idea is that multiculturalism is not just an academic fad, though it is that, but it is actually now a threat to the identity of the American people. Even though as yet um, everybody still, so to speak, is united by the common culture we talked about, the attempt to instill the belief that all these cultures are different and separate and equal, nonetheless is produced at university and is producing outside it, I think, an increase in social hatred. I mean, there's no doubt about it that ordinary uh, groups of people in this country seem to dislike each other more than they did when the objective conditions of the minorities was, was worse than it is today. So uh, uh, my argument on this is that race-conscious policies make people conscious of race. And the more conscious they are of race, uh, the less conscious they are of what unites them as Americans, and the less willing they are to cooperate across the board in in joint endeavors. And the more you see people, for example, in university canteens, uh, cafeterias, you see them sitting with their own racial group and people, in a sense, from other groups aren't welcome. And I think that's a very bad thing. But it's relatively recent in a way. And uh, I think it's a very good uh, it can be stopped. Well, I think that it's, in, it's recent. I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that this is the 50th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's entry into baseball, into Major League Baseball, breaking down the racial bar that existed in baseball. As someone who was raised in Brooklyn during that era, I remember Jackie Robinson quite well, and I remember what it was like at Ebbets Field. There was extraordinary camaraderie between blacks and whites. And it was brought about because of the loyalty that Brooklyn Dodger fans had to their team and to Jackie Robinson. And the fact is that the Brooklyn Dodger team not only had Jackie Robinson, but after a couple of years, Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella and a number of other black players. And it created a very special spirit, a spirit that commentators on the subject still discuss, Pete Hamill for one and Jack Newfield for another, who are always talking about this issue. And they are quite right. But now that we have entered the age of racial politics, my suspicion is that you find very little of this camaraderie existing on the baseball diamond, very little of this camaraderie that exists in places like uh, the new, even Yankee Stadium. 
And so I think that you're quite right in suggesting that affirmative action, which is an expression, a one manifestation of this kind of racial politics, has had the effect of creating an environment in which people are much more sensitive about race, much more conscious of it than they ever were before. Now, there's, there are two trends on the opposite direction which are very hopeful. One is intermarriage is rising. And, um, but very, very little among blacks and whites. Well, but it's still rising, and, and, um, the, uh, and, and there's considerable intermarriage between uh, whites and Asians, um, black, uh, blacks and Hispanics, uh, and um, uh, whites and Hispanics. And I do think there is more uh, black-white intermarriage, by the way. I mean, maybe not as, uh, not as uh, rapid a rate as uh, some other intermarriage, but there is an increase. And, um, and I th expect that that will grow. Now, that actually does, as you know, produce some tensions within races. Um, but I, I think that's inevitable, uh, um, and there will always be some problems between groups. I mean, uh, that's human history. And we can't abolish it. We can't uh, alter human nature. But we can try to have social arrangements that mean that the disputes that we do have are settled comfortably, and that there is a feeling that uh, in the society uh, that uh, they are united more by their common identity as Americans than they are separated by their distinct identities as members of a particular ethnic group. And I think intermarriage is one of those things. I'm reminded, excuse me for interrupting, John, I'm reminded of the, the Tiger Woods story. Now, here's a fellow with an Asian mother and a black father, and he does now ha not know how to identify himself. When, when he went to school, he would check African-American and he would check Asian-American. And people would still ask him, well, what are you? Now, of course, this is great confusion. He wants to say, I'm an American. I mean, isn't that sufficient? But obviously, it's not sufficient because the elites are very much interested in the segmentation of the population. Well, that's right, and they try to resist that. And pressure groups, which gain from the segmentation, um, as uh, also try to maintain it. Now, what's interesting, the second hopeful factor, is this push by uh, many Americans for the creation of a multiracial category. Um, I mean, I think the multiracial category should be called American. <laughs> and uh, and it's uh, uh, because there's a multi-ethnic category. Most of the white people one meets cannot say, you know, well, I'm Scots, I'm Irish, I'm German. I mean, they generally say, well, I have an English grandmother and a German father and so on and so forth. And uh, so I don't, um, uh, uh, and, and it's only, you know, 70 or 80 years ago that um, the white majority, which we now think of as being a monolithic one, uh, was a squabbling babel of Germans, Ukrainians, English, Scots, Irish, and so on. And there are still some of those loyalties present. And people do keep some cultural ties to the, those pasts. But the fact is, there isn't that kind of intra-white uh, uh, um, hostility that you used to get. And equally, I think we can expect the same diminution of uh, interracial hostility, the more the multiracial category increases, and the more uh, we abandon these boxes altogether. I mean, I have some sympathy with those people who say you shouldn't check the ethnic box; you should cross it out and write American. Well, I, if the the American category is now listed as other, yes. If you want an American category, it's O T H E R. Yes, and 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 I think you know that um, that is absurd. And and uh, there have always been people, of course, who've insisted on writing in American when it wasn't available. And I think that's the right attitude. Of course, there was a there was a time, and uh, not so long ago, when people understood full well what hyphenated loyalty meant. You can still have affection for the old world, but that hyphen suggested that there would be some kind of loyalty, understanding of the culture in which you found yourself embrace the language, embrace its history, embrace its culture. 
more and more I find that the hyphen is meaningless, that it's only the old world. There is no loyalty, no particular allegiance to the United States. I find in the beginning of the school day, oh, roughly 20, 25 years ago, every student said the Pledge of Allegiance. That is not done in most schools in the United States. There are many schools, including private schools in New York, that don't have an American flag. And I know of specific instances where this is true. And so this notion that somehow you have to maintain an allegiance to the country in which you find yourself is less and less true. That, that becomes, I think, somewhat problematic. It is only the old world. The United States is seen as a ge geographic entity, not a cultural entity, because there are some who maintain there really isn't a cultural ethos. I think you've introduced an, a very important point here, and I think we should really mark it out very plainly. And the important point is that there are some people in this society, and as I say, they're mainly to be found in what I call the new class. Well, not just I call, but generally it's called the new class, the, the non-technical intelligentsia, which runs the bureaucracies, the um, cultural institutions, the media, uh, the courts. Uh, that many of those people do not have a national outlook at all. They have an international outlook. They feel more in common with the same type of people running this, those institutions in other countries, particularly in Western Europe, say, and particularly, say, in the Soviet Union in the past. And, um, I'm not Soviet Union, I mean, but the, there was a certain sort of sympathy for the nomenclatura, um, which uh, means that they look up their, their primary loyalties are, so to speak, um, horizontal. Uh, across nations rather than vertical up and down in their own nation. And uh, that is why they basically don't have any sympathy for a specifically American culture or would deny that there is one because they see the world uh, and they see their own states as a microcosm of the world as one in which you have all these different nationalities and then above them a kind of enlightened Swedish socialist ruling class uh, which will uh, guide everyone in the right paths, prevent conflicts breaking out, and generally rule um, the unenlightened uh, masses the way, say, British civil servants ruled the 600 million Indians, uh, you know, in all their different religions and, uh, and, uh, and ethnic groups. Now, I think that's a vainglorious ideal. Uh, it's absurd. Uh, it won't be accepted by any democracy in the long run, though you can get away with it for a while. Uh, uh, but it does explain uh, this hostility to, um, uh, uh, to having any kind of national um, uh, culture. And, and uh, uh, so, so I, I, mean, I think you've identified something important. Very quickly, there's something else which is important too. Uh, America is the leading nation in what is now an Anglophone world culture. Um, the other countries being, of course, Britain, uh, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, uh, and a number of and, and large numbers of people in countries like India, which uh, uh, who speak English, though obviously they're a minority in that country. And um, uh, well, this is this culture is a kind of uh, Hellenic world. Um, the uh, the it's uh, there are it is divided into countries. And those countries are, in my view, important, and they have their own distinct cultures with, of their own. But this larger English-speaking world culture is dominated by major cities. And the three major cities which dominate it culturally are Los Angeles, through Hollywood, um, New York, and London. And other cities are important, like Sydney in Australia. Uh, and uh, many of these cities are uh, multi-ethnic. Uh, Vancouver is very, uh, quite Asian, uh, known as Hong Coover. 
um, because of the large numbers of Hong Kong Chinese who've come to live there. I believe that uh, Sydney and Toronto are two of the largest uh, Italian cities in the world, uh, dwarfing most Italian, most Italian cities in Italy. Um, and um, this gives America, as the dominant uh, power in this uh, Hellenic, uh, Anglophone Hellenic world culture, uh, an extremely influential position. And it does mean that Americans, in a sense, can have the option of an almost a third identity. They have the identity of their original um, uh, ethnic group. They have the American identity, which I think is the most important one. And thirdly, really, Americans can go almost anywhere, most of these countries, and feel almost at home. Um, and uh, they are aware of life in those countries to a considerable extent. Uh, because they see uh, television programs and movies. To give you an example, um, it, the most popular soap on British TV is Neighbours, which is an Australian uh, a soap. And, um, uh, and of course, you get now uh, quite a lot of British comedy programs, uh, some of which then get imitated in American TV. You've got American movies that show it all over this world. So I think there is um, a, this third uh, diluted identity which I distinguish very sharply from the loyalty that the new class feels to itself across often linguistic barriers uh, to, uh, to other ruling classes in places like the European community. Uh, but it's an important one because it gives um, uh, Americans the opportunity to be cosmopolitan if they so choose. Certainly if you follow the internet, there is no question that we have broken down international barriers to some degree. But to return to the theme of one-worldism, it is interesting that in many nations of the world, you have people who might be the nationalists, or at least the, the people who express the view of nationalism, the Le Pens in France, the Buchanans in the United States, and clearly there are others. You might even use Zirinovsky as an example in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union in Russia. But the, the interesting thing is that these people, by and large, are marginalized. Not to some degree, I think they should be. Some of them are extremes. Zirinovsky has made outrageous, and I wouldn't compare Pat Buchanan with Zirinovsky, which I think yeah. is distinctly unfair, unfair to Buchanan. Yeah. But, but, the, but the arguments are arguments that are exceedingly interesting when you consider the questions that you've raised and the context in which you've raised them. And yet, by and large, they are marginalized in the societies where this kind of expression is found. Now, there is maybe it's the manner in which these people express themselves. Maybe it comes across as a kind of racialist argument. There are maybe a variety of reasons why this is true. But it's also true that fundamentally they are making a sound argument. They're making an argument about the retention of national culture in a time when we're starting to see great a sea change that's occurring in the world scene. Now, I wonder if you could comment on what these people mean the future of national culture and whether, in fact, these are the people who are best prepared to make this kind of expression. Well, what you're describing is the result of the fact that in the countries um, uh, you mentioned, uh, the main conservative party, the party of the right, has cut itself off from important segments of its own supporters and from important emotional sources of support in nationalism and patriotism and concentrated too exclusively upon a purely economic message. And this weakens that party, in my view. It weakens it uh, morally and spiritually and in terms of its morale, uh, and it weakens it electorally. To give you a very obvious example, uh, in um, the uh, uh, recent elections in New Zealand, uh, the, uh, a party called New Zealand First, which is the kind of Buchananite party you're talking about, got something like 14% of the vote and came near to 
deprived the party of the the major conservative party of its majority um, in Austria. Uh, the uh, slightly misnamed Freedom Party uh, has um, uh, got something like, uh, I forget the figure now, but something like 40% of the working class vote uh, and is now running almost neck and neck with the uh, conservative and the um, social democratic parties. Uh, and uh, those votes, most of them, would have gone to the parties of the right. Le Pen, uh, who is of sinister character, is siphoning off um, votes which would normally go to the Conservative Party because those parties, all these Conservative parties, the British one is an exception under Mrs. Thatcher. Um, she was able to retain patriotic support. She made a specifically patriotic and nationalist appeal and the, and the party is drawing on those emotional sources of support. But in this country, it seems to me the Republicans have more or less abandoned this because they've been frightened by a campaign which has told them that to be interested in uh, the national well-being of the country in, the, in that sense, to be interested in defending America as a culture of its own um, is, um, is to be nativist. But if, if this timidity is true, and if in fact we are talking about a sizable portion of the Republican constituency, maybe as large as 20 to 25 percent of the Republican constituency, is there in fact a need for a third party that would represent this nationalist impulse? that would suggest to both the Republicans and maybe even the Democrats that in fact you are not representing a sizable portion of the population deeply interested in these ideas and that we are simply not going to go along with the new new class view of the world. Uh, now it, it seems to me that this could be the conscience of the Republican Party. It could indeed be a group that would be saying to Republicans, well if you do the things that we agree with, we'll vote for you, but if you don't, we're going to run our own candidates. Well, let's talk about the things that we're, uh, that we're talking about. What do we mean? What would the program of such a party be? And I think, well, it would, for example, be a defense of the English language as the language of the society, opposition to affirmative action, um, opposition to the kind of history standards that we saw, which downgrade the, uh, the true story of America and return for uh, promoting all kind of uh, fantasies, of uh, ethnic fantasies. It would be um, an attempt to restore the concept, to repair the common American culture as the basis for a common American nationality, which everybody shared and all ethnic, to which all ethnic groups have contributed. I agree with that. That's a perfectly respectable, and decent and powerful message. Um, the fact is, such parties keep emerging. I mean, the, in, his, um, in his eccentric way, Ross Perot. Uh, helped was creating such a party, but because he himself was too much enthralled to establishment opinion, because he himself couldn't see exactly what his own supporters saw, um, he frittered away that opportunity. And that party now is, so to speak, uh, down, going down again. Um, I thought that was ostensibly an economic nationalism. And I think what you're talking about, John, is more a cultural nationalism. Well, you see, I think that cultural nationalism has been deprived of its vocabulary. The vocabulary has been stigmatized by um, um, liberals, new class liberals, as nativist and so on. Now, that being the case, uh, people who are worried about the cultural fragmentation of the society, who don't like to see it being split into mutually warring hostile tribes, don't have the language uh, available to them that would have been available to them a hundred years ago. Uh, that Theodore, that Teddy Roosevelt uh, spoke very confidently and very effectively. Uh, so they have to express these anxieties in economic language, which is the only respectable language that the right is allowed. So, uh, so I think that uh, what you're hearing when you hear these economic anxieties is the, the, the cultural anxieties in code. 
Well, I think that it's time for us to consider the creation of a third party, one that would express these kind of nationalist sentiments in a language that you've used here very effectively today. I thank you, John, for joining us. I, uh, unless you have, you want the final word, you have it. You have it. Well, I think if you could have nationwide the kind of conservative party that New York uh, has benefited from, and which you would distinguished representative of in the uh, governor's campaign a few years ago, uh, then I think we'd be better off because that's a party which can then decide whether or not to back a sound Republican or to set, set up its own candidate against an unsound Republican. And in those circumstances, it has considerable power over the Republican Party. Well, get into the nature of the conservative party, but the difficulty with a third party is that its principles can easily be compromised on the altar of, uh, of patronage. And you, also, and you also need uh, to have a legal system in which you can have fusion tickets. Uh, exactly, exactly. Well, John, it was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.